This episode of Ear Buddies is brought to you by who else but Applebee's, an American casual dining mainstay with plans to open a location in the United Arab Emirates pretty soon. With Applebee's, you are eating good in the neighborhood. It's Applebee's. Welcome to another brand new episode of Ear Buddies. You know what they say, if it's Monday, it's Ear Buddies Day. Uh, this is Matt, Maddie on the mic. Some people call me Maddie. Um, well, it's just me again, guys. This keeps happening. And hey, it's fine with me if it's fine with you. Tim, once again, in good health, in good spirits, but... He's got that baby. Guys, he's got a baby. And when my buddy Tim calls and says, I have this baby, he's taken up so much of my time, and I love it. I love him. I love being a father. But I just don't know if I have the emotional bandwidth or the time to record a new Ear Buddies app for, for this coming Monday. And he asks you to to maybe fly solo once more, well, a good friend says yes, and so I said yes. And if I'm being honest with you guys, I'm, I feel like I'm finally getting my sea legs here just as a solo, a solo auteur um, in the podcasting world. Um, of course, we do miss Tim, but I am no longer a baby bird. My, my wings have grown, my feathers are strong, I'm flying out of the nest at dizzying speeds, and I am excited once again to take you on a fabulous journey. Now, I'm sure many of you, when you saw this episode title in your feed, you thought, well, that's odd. I would have thought that Ear Buddies would be covering uh, perhaps all the news about Spotify, that's going around, and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and a number of other artists pulling their music because of Joe Rogan's COVID misinformation. Maybe like an episode about, I don't know, the Laurel Canyon days or perhaps Canadian folk and Americana music. That seems about right. Well, look, guys, Ear Buddies cannot jump on every single cultural grenade that is thrown at us, okay? Stuff keeps happening, and it, it, it's becoming a chore to address all of this, all of this news. And, and this, I mean this, I know bait when I see it. And when Spotify and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young are all fighting, that's bait for ear buddies. And I'm not, I, I have integrity here. I'm not going to be pulled around by the nose to to talk about these things that you, as the public, so clearly are demanding that we talk about. So I'm going to take a, a hard left here. I'm going a different direction. And the direction I am going is, of course, 
Kate Bush direction. So why Kate Bush? Why Kate Bush direction? Great question, as always. You guys always ask the most uh, insightful, probing questions. Here's here's why. A couple of reasons. One, um, again, I feel like I may not need to say this every time, but um, I'm just indulging myself a little bit. I'm a huge Kate Bush fan, and I want to talk about Kate Bush. So in one sense, simple as that. Uh, the other reason is because if you, like me, like us here at Ear Buddies, are online, and I'm saying that with a capital O, you will have seen photos of Kate Bush coming across your timeline uh, every hmm, five, six, seven, eight weeks. Uh, it's usually like either one photo of her or like a collage of when she was really serving or something. And, and it always goes, I mean, semi-viral, right? It, it goes, people really enjoy liking photos of Kate Bush on the internet. And one must ask oneself, what is, what, what is going on here? Because if you're like me, you didn't know people really liked Kate Bush that much. Well, if you're like me, that means you're an American. And Americans don't really know about Kate Bush. So to my British audience, I'm sorry, to our British audience, just because Tim's not here doesn't mean he's not part of the pod. To our British audience, I would, I'll just, I mean, I'm not going to apologize, but I will say this may be stuff that you know. But to the Americans, that is a real blind spot. Uh, in our cultural education. And so I will take this opportunity to um, remove the mud from your eyes and teach you a little bit about Kate Bush and why she's worth knowing and why she's worth getting really into. So let's begin with, as always, some context, some historical context. Kate was born on July 30th, 1958, uh, which of course is the day before uh, Harry Potter and Neville Longbottom uh, before their birthdays. They obviously weren't born in 1958, but just in case you need something to remember her birthday by. It's the day before she would have been one of the children of that prophecy. So that just, you know, keep that in mind if anyone ever asks. Um, you know, she uh, was a kid, grew up, got into music, as one does, and started writing her own songs. When she was around 15 or 16, her family helped her produce a demo tape of over 50 uh, of her original songs, which is, well, an insane amount of songs to have at that age, but also that's an insane amount of songs to put on a demo. Kate, I mean, come on, ne- people aren't going to listen to 50 songs. However, what happened was, through a friend of a friend of the family, uh, this tape got in the hands of David Gilmore, who was Pink Floyd's guitarist, and he was into it. 
I guess he listened to some of them and he helped her put together a more professional one, cut down, you know, I mean, a lot of the songs and then started sending that tape around. Long story short, uh, label guys got it and she ended up signing a deal with EMI. As labels do, uh, they gave her a big advance and she used that to enroll in interpretive dance classes and mime school, which is just fun and actually mattered uh, further down the road in her career where that actually became a part of her art. Anyway, in 1978, when she was 19, she released her debut album, The Kick Inside, and it chose the single herself, she chose the single, to be Wuthering Heights. This song, believe it or not, went to number one in the UK. It was the first time that a female artist had reached number one in the UK with a self-written song. And listening to this song, I mean, I think we can agree, that's insane that that went to number one. It sounds absolutely bizarre. Like, it's catchy. It's a great tune. But what the heck is going on here, Kate? Like, she's singing like a maniac the instrumentation is very like uh, gothic and romantic and 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 bizarre and this was not like this was not the kind of music that was happening um especially not on the charts in 1978 believe you me and even more sort of bizarrely this song is called wuthering heights it's about <laughs> Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Like, that's... Apparently, uh, Kate had watched some of, not all of, the BBC uh, series or special um, that was an adaptation of of Wuthering Heights. Never read the book, um, but got inspired. I mean, I get it. I've been 19. I would... (laughs) I mean, I would do the same thing. That's just fun. But for it to go to number one... Um, folks, that's bizarre. Also insane is that she recorded her vocal for the track in one take, and uh, for the music video, music videos, there are two versions, she used her interpretive dance knowledge and choreographed um, her dance, her all her movements in this video. And then, uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be released on a certain date, and she didn't like the cover, the artwork, and so she insisted that it be postponed until she was happy with the cover. So, at 19, she emerges as this force, this creative force, and somehow captures the hearts and minds of the British public in the late 1970s. So, that's very exciting. I mean, what a ride for Kate. You're 19 years old, and you're singing as a character, as a ghost character in an 1847 gothic romance, and you go to number one, and you have enough of a backbone to make your label change the release 
of your single because you don't like the artwork, that's, I mean, hats off to Kate. But then, well, things got even better for Kate. The album itself went on to sell over a million copies, and she was the first female artist in history to have written every song on a million-selling debut album. And then to maintain control, she sets up her own publishing company, she sets up her own management team, she has to go on tour to support this album, and she loses her mind. She uh, set up this massive thing, this this circus, essentially, and uh, she was working with magicians and dancers, she choreographed it, she... Uh, you know, helped set up the the set design and the costume design, the lighting. Um, she had 17 costume changes per show. Like this is this is theater, and people loved it. People could not get enough of whatever this lunatic was doing. So things continue to pace for Kate for a bit. Uh, she was beloved by the critics and the public. Uh, in 1980, she released uh, another album, Never Forever, uh, and the lead single on that was another insane song that reached number five called Babushka. So another insane song. Um, yeah, people, I mean, people still loved it. And then in 1982, she releases The Dreaming, which was the first of her albums that she produced entirely by herself. Um, And this one is noted for its use of the Fairlight Synthesizer, which is this massive 80s synth. Um, You know, you hear it in a bunch of 80s music. It's sort of um, synonymous with uh, the 80s sound. And she... Um, well, she described The Dreaming as her, like, Gone Mad album because it was much more dense and, like, less accessible, which is interesting to say because it's not like her stuff was that accessible from the get-go. But this one, uh, I mean, this one is thick. There's there's a lot going on. And even lyrically in this one, she's, she's still drawing from uh, just experiences other than her own. Uh, the title track, The Dreaming, is about the plight of the indigenous Australians. So this was, uh, as you can expect, a bit polarizing. Um, she really did not seem to have much concern for what the public wanted. Um, but her label did. Her label wanted to make some money off of old Kate, off of young Kate, I'm sorry. And so then we come to 1985. And this is, uh, this is perhaps the best window, the best entry into Kate's work. Because in 1985, she released an album called Hounds of Love. She's in the trees. It's coming. When I was a child, running in the night, afraid of what I might be. Hiding in the dark, 
This album was um, absolutely Kate's best, and considered by many, myself included, to be one of the greatest albums of all time. It's fascinating to, uh, well, to think about and to listen to. It was conceptualized and then recorded as two distinct musical suites. And a suite in music, well, French suite means a sequence, right? So it's one thing following another. The, it's the first side, the first five tracks. Um, that's the Hounds of Love part, right? Those are five, well, absolute bangers. Uh, four of the five were singles. Um, that did very well each individually. And the second side, um, although still under the, the Hounds of Love title, um, was conceptualized as something called the Ninth Wave. And it's seven songs. Um, and it's sort of a, well, a mini concept album, a suite, right, of uh, someone in the water, out in the, in the ocean, in a life jacket, uh, just trying not to fall asleep or else they'll drown. Kate, what is going through that beautiful British head of yours? That's insane. But look, that's what Kate wanted to do. And so that's what she did. And Hounds of Love is is fascinating too because um, before she, well, she always had quite a bit of control, obviously, over her image and her sound. Uh, but this one, she built a studio uh, in a barn, kind of like behind her family's house. She built a studio uh, with the full console and the Fairlight synthesizer and microphones, everything she needed. And she just took her time and produced this album entirely on her own. So let's talk about the Hounds of Love part first. The five, uh, I guess, yeah, more accessible songs. The first side, five songs, four of them singles. Um, they're all bangers. We start with Running Up That Hill, which is mm, probably her most famous song. And then we go on to Hounds of Love, which is also, of course, very famous. Uh, This, I mean, this is just hook after hook. And then, uh, third one, we have The Big Sky. Again, just another banger. This uh, fun fact: the bass on this was played by a guy named Youth, who uh, went on to produce such songs as uh, "Howie Days," "Collide," and uh, "Bittersweet Symphony" by The Verve. That's just fun for you guys to know. The fourth one is "Mother Stands for Comfort," which wasn't a single, but it's still great. And the fifth one actually is my favorite. It's called Cloud Busting, and it is beautiful. I still dream of I wake up 
for me, this song, Cloud Busting, is perhaps the best example of what I love and what I think people love about Kate Bush. Um, again, the lyrics have nothing to do with her own life. Uh, it's about a, a memoir by a guy named Peter Reich uh, called A Book of Dreams, which Kate had read and found very affecting. And the lyrics are from the point of view of this man as, as a boy. Uh, and they talk about his relationship with his father, who was a psychiatrist who was eventually arrested and imprisoned by the U.S. government for, uh, well, his, his work. He was sort of... Um, an insane type of person and perhaps a fraud. But uh, you listen to these lyrics and it's it's enthralling because this is not Kate's life. This is somebody else's life who she does not know, but she imbues it with uh, such emotion and, I mean, historically correct details. Um and turns it into poetry, and turns it into a song. And uh, cloud-busting, that, that refers to how young Peter and his father would uh, go outside with a cloud-busting machine uh, and just, just hang out and bust clouds all day, father and son. And then he was arrested and imprisoned by the U.S. government. And that was a single... And a popular one. That's what people were on board with. And to talk briefly about the instrumentation here, uh, not just with the cloud busting, but the album as a whole, I mean, it's very, it's very different from what one is used to hearing. It's art pop, it's art rock, it's prog rock almost. Uh, she's using, well, the Fairlight again, of course, and she's using all these traditional Irish and, and European instruments and some African instruments. Her brother, uh, Patty Bush, was playing, uh, like, the bazooki and the didgeridoo and all of these strange, uh, instruments that were not, uh, not often heard by anyone in Europe, uh, in the 1980s. So that's the, the Hounds of Love suite. And then we flip that record over. And we begin playing the Ninth Wave. I think it's fair to say that Kate snapped. Come here with me. She went off with, with this collection of seven songs. It is, it is incredible music. Tune into some friendly voices Talk. 
she takes us through this journey, again, of a, a person just floating in the dark ocean, trying not to fall asleep. And it's definitely less... Well, I'm not going to say less accessible. It's less poppy. It's less catchy than the Hounds of Love Suite. But it is... Uh, it has more depth. It has more... Uh, darkness and I think that the orchestration and the arrangements and the vocal performances are incomparable um, there's a, a whistle note at the end of and dream of sheep that apparently she and uh, the guy the guy who was playing the whistle she had him do that note over and over for three hours in the studio uh, because she was looking for just the right bend at the end of it. And like that's the level of detail that is going into these songs and keeping in mind too that Kate is the one producing all of this like she has essentially full creative control and Again, this is what she does. She she had a did a music video for um, "And Dream of Sheep" in like 2014, so years after this came out, where she spent like three days in a in a special box in a tank, uh, just floating in the water, singing this song. So "Hounds of Love" was released. It did very well. It charted, um, even charted in the U.S., which was. <laughs> sort of um, fun for the American audience. Um, and it got a bunch of awards and nominations and uh, retrospectively has been put on all kinds of greatest albums of the 80s and best female artist performances, etc., etc. Post Hounds of Love, there's a lot worth talking about. Uh, Kate is still alive and she is, you know, being a, a hermit somewhere. She released more music after. Uh, nothing that um, affected the cultural imagination in the way that Hounds of Love did. But I'm going to stop there as far as the, um, the chronology of her releases and her work because I want to talk about why people care about Kate Bush and why I think people ought to care about Kate Bush. Because even for me, a, a fellow who is both a scholar and a real musician, uh, it is a little confusing, right? Like, why? what do people see or hear in Kate Bush that uh, is so engaging and so um, inviting and interesting? I don't have a complete answer. But I think that the thing with Kate is that she sort of lives and always has lived and created entirely um, free from the constraints of the market, of the the trends. Like, she exists 
in a very obvious way, I think, outside the world, well, outside the world, but outside the world of, of popular music. She, even from the her first single, Wuthering Heights, like, that, she's 19, and that sounded like nothing, lyrically and sonically, that had ever really existed, or at least that had gone to number one before. And then she continued doing that. Like, she fulfilled, you know, the obligations of her contract with EMI and, and did her tour and released her albums. But uh, it is not very common for a famous and well-respected artist to release something like The Hounds of Love and for it to do very well. I mean, it's easy enough to be experimental um, and claim that people don't understand um, your art. But in this case, she was just off the wall marching to the beat of an entirely different drummer, writing songs about things that no one had heard or cared about, and made it work in a way that was winning her awards. And I think that is the real appeal of Kate Bush and of her her music. She has always been so unconcerned with trends and with uh, marketing herself. And it's it's very authentic, and people really, I mean, obviously respond to that. Um, well, talking about actually, so she has a very, uh, a big gay fan base, and Rufus Wainwright, who you may remember from the Shrek soundtrack, he said something a while ago. He said, she is so removed from the real world. She is one of the only artists who makes it appear better to be on the outside than on the inside. And he was saying that uh, in response to a question about, you know, why does she have this, this massive gay fan base? And I agree with Rufus. And I think, like... That obviously doesn't just apply to um, her gay fan base, but it applies to people who are looking for actual authenticity in artistry. And as Tim and I have said many times, like, it doesn't have to be authentic to be a good song. It can be pop by committee. It can be, uh, you know, another Max Martin joint. It can be... uh, over-processed and over-produced and still be a decent song. But with this, with Kate, uh, because of her um, absolute insistence on creative control, she has uh, developed and maintained this kind of integrity that I really just, I don't know, I don't think you see it that often, and especially not in a way uh, that's so um, so flamboyant and so flashy and so, um, I'll use this word again, bizarre, because, you know, these are not instruments that people are, are looking to hear. These are not lyrics that people are, are wanting to talk about. Nobody cares about this kid and his uh, crazy psychiatrist father. No one cares, I mean, hate to say it, about the, the plight of the indigenous Australian people. But that was all fodder for Kate. And I think 
you know, looking at her lyrics, it's also fascinating because we talk about people like, I'm going to say it, Taylor Swift, Olivia Rodrigo, the up-and-coming, often female singer-songwriters, and, you know, the emo genre in itself, and and these real diary pages um, that people relate to. Um, and it's easy, it's easy to relate to things like that. And, of course, we want to hear it done well, and there's a reason that artists like like those that I just mentioned have the success in the fan bases that they do have. But it is a much harder sell when you read an obscure novel and are going to uh, write a song from the perspective of one of the characters in it. And it's much more uh, difficult when you are bringing in people to play instruments that nobody has, uh, nobody in your culture has really heard on a, on a pop record. And to sort of circle back and, and put a pin in in all of this, I mentioned, you know, that she didn't really break in America ever, except for maybe after the fact. And I really think the reason for that is because she didn't really care. She didn't really care to, to do that. Um, you know, she did not go on tours. She went on, you know, one. And didn't want to put in the the work and the effort to market herself in America or really in in the UK either but that uh, I think that is largely the reason for her like just that unshakable artistic integrity because she was not she said in interviews before that she wasn't concerned about being famous Uh, she just wanted to make something musically interesting and so I don't know I think when you are when you have your eye on that, on your art and what you're creating, rather than the market trends and public opinion, um, yeah, you're going to make some things that are maybe more dense and less accessible and, and polarizing. But Kate obviously had the ability as well to write smashes, and they hold up uh, just as good as anything, if not better, because she, again, was not working within any trends that have faded. She was doing her own thing. She was making uh, her own art and making up her own mind, controlling her own career and her own image. And the result uh, is, you know, what we have, Kate Bush's whole body of work. So, um, you know, that's it for this segment. I would just encourage you um, out there in the Army to... Check out Kate Bush. Check out Hounds of Love specifically. And, um, I mean, feel free to call in or send a, a DM or a letter or whatever. Let me know what you thought. Um, I don't hear from the Ear Buddies Army as much as I would like to, and um, it's time we changed that. Ear Buddies will be back in just a moment. This episode of Ear Buddies is brought to you by Applebee's. That's right, folks. It's Applebee's. You know, you go there all the time. You love their food. It is just fine. 
It is fine to eat. It doesn't make you sick or anything. And if you say that it's not good, what are you, what, who are you trying to impress? You know, look, full disclosure, here at Ear Buddies, we get a lot of emails, uh, messages on Signal, phone calls, notarized letters from law firms and representation of different companies and and businesses. Um, and sometimes things get lost in the mix. So, for some reason, uh, we saw this email from Applebee's just this past week, but it had been sent in the summer of 2021. And uh, I guess it went to the spam folder. I guess uh, maybe our filters were a little too good at their job. But what happened was Applebee's, they emailed us and they said, as you know, we are experiencing sort of a... um, sort of a golden hour here because of Walker Hayes and his hit song, Fancy Like. And they went on to say, we're trying to capitalize, of course, on on this unexpected uh, blessing. And we would love if Ear Buddies would do a little, a little ad read and, and maybe just sort of re-legitimize us in the American consciousness. Uh, Yeah, so we didn't see that then. But uh, I asked this last week, I said, do you still... I said, sorry for not seeing that email. Can we still do that? Is that cool? And they said, yeah, absolutely. We, We still, you know, the Walker Hayes song isn't going away, nor are the um, boneless wings or the uh spinach artichoke dip it's all there and we you know whenever you get around to it we'd love for you to to do an ad read for us we'd love to sponsor the pod and i said okay great i'm in so i'm in applebee's is doing really well right now and it's not just because of that walker hayes song it's not just because of the bourbon street steak and the oreo shake it's because Their food is just what the doctor ordered. And by the doctor, I, of course, mean the American consumer. That's you. That's you. And I think what has plagued Applebee's reputation in the past is that a bunch of snobs, a bunch of coastal elites, stuffed shirts and social climbers are... they, they. they drag the good name of Applebee's through the mud. They say things like, this food is terrible. It is not fit for human consumption. It's uh, pre-frozen and pre-refrigerated, and, you know, the the flavor palette is, is disgusting to my uh, delicate coastal sensibilities. Come on! That is unfair. I ask you, those of you who are saying this, what are you looking for in a casual dining experience? Applebee's has 
everything. They've got new, like, hot Cheetos boneless wings. Do you not want that? Are you not a patriot? They've got uh, the riblets. They've got... uh, They have salads. Is that better for you? Because they have salads. So don't... Uh, Look, Applebee's has the Dollarita. You can... You can pay them one dollar, one American dollar, and get some alcohol that tastes fine. You can get absolutely crocked at an Applebee's for ten bucks or less. Like it's just, it's just offensive, I think, to be going around saying that it's not good enough for you because you. Hey, look, look at me. Just look at me. You don't know anything. You don't know about food. You don't know about the work that the Applebee's chefs and staff put in to making this food for you. Um, you don't know until just now that they their stock is still rising, largely because of uh, the Walker Hayes song and probably this ad read. And you also didn't even know that they're opening a new location in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that's a successful restaurant, folks. Right? What do you measure success by? You're telling me that on a Thursday night, you would rather go to some artisanal, bespoke, uh, chef's table featured Netflix restaurant where they are baking a potato underground and, and the, there's a catch of the day that costs $45. Is that what you want? You want like a freshly mixed Negroni or something with, uh, you know, top shelf liquor. Cause that's all they have. They don't have well liquor. Well, guess what, buddy? You can't afford that. You can afford Applebee's. You need to admit that to yourselves uh, before we can really come together as a nation. That's where I see the divide, right? It's, it's people who respect and understand and appreciate at least Applebee's and people who are pretending that Applebee's is not good enough for them. That is anti-American and that is wrong. So uh, I won't, I won't carry on anymore. I think I've fulfilled uh, the terms of the deal with Applebee's here. But let's just keep in mind that on any given night or afternoon, you can, there's an Applebee's three miles away right now. You can go there. You can spend a reasonable amount of money and have a good time either by yourself, with your family, with a date perhaps, like Walker Hayes and his wife. You can get that Oreo shake. They put it back on the menu after the song went viral. Uh, and, And sometimes that's all you need. You do not need those fancy, uh, like kale. What is that? Arugula. Remember when Barack Obama said something about arugula? You didn't even know what that was. So let's stop. Let's stop with the Applebee's hate. Let's all go on TikTok. Let's all learn that Applebee's dance. And let's just come together as a neighborhood. Heal the divide in America. And and sit down. Share a dollarita. 
share a plate of riblets and some new Cheetos boneless wings. Doesn't that sound nice? It's Applebee's eating good in the neighborhood. Yeah, we fancy like Applebee's on a date night. Got that Burma Street stay with the Oreo shake and some whipped cream on the top two. Two straws, one check, girl, I got you. Bougie like now. Welcome back to Ear Buddies. Thanks for hanging out. Another Monday down, folks. Pretty exciting. We're doing it. It's really all happening for the the army. But look, uh, you all know old Maddie. I could I could talk the ear off a donkey, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to waste any more of our time. Not that this has been time wasted. Time spent with friends is never time wasted. But I've sort of said all I'd like to say, and to be honest, that ad read exhausted me. Um, so since we're coming up on that classic Ear Buddies episode cutoff time, uh, I'll just leave it there. It has been an indescribable pleasure, as always, being with you. Um, next week, we've got a very special guest that uh, I'm very excited for, so keep an ear to the ground for that. Uh, so, much like the 2014 comedy starring Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, and Adam Driver, this is where I leave you. <laughs>